Hello, everyone. I'm Danny Torres, host of the Talking 21 podcast, part of the Our Esquina Podcast Network. Baseball is finally back. Before I begin my conversation with St. Louis Cardinals pitcher Adam Wainwright, I wanted to turn the clock back for our listeners to an unforgettable postseason moment that occurred 15 years ago. Our episode three guest, who was actually drafted by the Atlanta Braves 21 years ago, was at Shea Stadium for the 2006 National League Championship Series. It was game seven and that New York Mets were facing the Cardinals. I was covering that decisive game and as a member of the media had to present an impartial demeanor. But deep down inside, I was rooting for my childhood team to win that unforgettable series. But unfortunately, we know the outcome. Our next guest has said it was one of the highlights of his career. Just hearing that against my team, wow, it gives me the chills. In 2006, Adam Wainwright was a rookie closer who eventually became a World Series champion. I always wondered what he was thinking when he faced the Mets lineup in that crucial ninth inning of the National League Championship Series. But to this day, there are certain Mets fans who still harbor ill will because of that one at bat by one of the greatest Mets center fielders of all time, Carlos Beltran. Despite the fact that he actually had an impressive championship series. The 0-2 delivery. Curve struck him out looking. The Cardinals are going to Michigan to take on the Tigers. They mob, they mob Adam Wainwright on the mound. They are National League champions and headed for Detroit. Yet in that at bat, he was caught looking. It wasn't meant to be. As a Mets fan, I needed to know more about that Game 7 moment with the future Roberto Clemente Award winner on the mound. So Adam Wainwright and I took a deep dive into that phenomenal series and our two-part conversation. He shared some outstanding moments from his long and storied career. Some of the adversities he's overcome, his relentless faith in God, and of course the great one, Roberto Clemente Walker. So here is the first installment of the two-part Talking 21 podcast conversation with Cardinals legend Adam Wainwright. But we all know, for uh, <clears throat> us Mets fans, uh, what occurred in uh, 2006 Game 7 of the National League Championship Series. And here it is, someone by the name, uh, with the nickname Waino, uh, broke the hearts of Mets fans to including yours truly. And I actually was uh, a part of the media. I was in the stands. Um, they set up the mezzanine level uh, for the media, for the um, overflow. And here it is, who eventually in 2013 would uh, join you in, an, in a World Series there, Mr. Carlos Beltran. But it was that pitch, the curveball. And I want uh, our listeners, especially those Met fans that might even be cringing right now that I'm asking Adam Wainwright this question. But if you could put us now literally directly on the pitcher's mound and give us a sense of that moment. Well, 
It's a great question. It's one I love answering. Uh, it's obviously. Oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> probably the highlight of my career. Um, you know, unfortunately, I was a rookie, and so I, I need to have some more highlights. It was been a long time ago, but. Um, okay, so I'll paint the scene for you a little bit. So. <clears throat> I had a, a pretty good season. I had a, a, a very good postseason up to that point. And I was very focused and able to block out all kinds of noise and um, everything. But the Shea Stadium faithful had gotten to me a little bit. Uh, really? It, just innings before, Scott Rowland hits a ball that would have been a home run, and Indy Chavez goes over the fence and brings it back. Remember that? At the wall, a leap. takes a home run and turns it into a double play. I'm, I'm in the bullpen. And so that's where that ball was about to land is in the bullpen. And, and I'm literally five feet from where that ball is about to come out. So we were going to, we were going to get the ball is when he hit it, we were like, come on, baby, come on. And I was running over to go get the ball. And uh, we just see his arm go over and come back. And he caught it and threw it in and they doubled up Jimmy Edmonds at first base and, into the beginning and and we uh kind of sitting there just kind of going over that like man this has got a bad feeling to it and then we look at the lineup and indy was coming up the following inning potentially and we knew jeff supon was on the mound he was pitching a great game but we knew he was kind of getting to the end of his rope and so we're looking at it going oh man this is not good because when things like that happen in baseball and the next inning they come up they make a great play you'll hear somebody from the dugout say how many times you see it because you go out there, you make a great play. They come up to bat. Inevitably, they do something great. Like, well, he comes up to bat. And if I'm not mistaken, bases are loaded. And Supon gets him to pop up to center. And so then it kind of reset for me because at first when he was up, everybody in the bullpen, everybody in the stands, probably they remembered the catch he made. Everybody on TV was probably talking about it. But we were going, oh, man, this stinks. He's Indy. You know, he just made that great catch. This is this is it. He's gonna, man. You know, there's this that kind of feeling. To this day, I still remember that catch, that acrobatic leap by Andy Chavez in left field, and how Shea Stadium was literally shaking at its foundation. I even remember calling my older brother Jose on my flip phone, who is seated in the upper deck, saying, "Did you see that? We're going to the World Series." But that jubilation sadly would turn to devastation in the ninth inning. The Shea Stadium faithful had begun to get to me. They were rocking the whole game. And that, that Shea Stadium crowd, Mets fans, as you know, being one of them, can really be raucous. They were letting me have it. And, and running onto the field in San Diego and running onto the field and in all the other places that I had pitched in the postseason and the regular season before that, I was able to – almost kind of clear the mechanism to quote um, a great movie and run out there without hearing all that fuzz and all that noise and be very focused and, and, and intent on what the job I had to do. And as I'm running out onto that field, I'm hearing every cuss word from every Mets fan coming right down on top of me. And it was super loud. And, 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 pl and please, for our listeners, don't share any of those words. Uh, don't please, no, no, please no, don't. no, no, no. <laughs> Especially not on a, a, a talking <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, and the first two people get base hits. Yes. Because, because my mind was just racing. 
And so at that point, our manager, Tony Russo, he'd put a lot of faith and trust in me to be a rookie in that situation to begin with. He starts getting the bullpen double barrel hot, getting lefties up, getting this and that. And so then you got on the other side, you got a decision to make because on deck is a hitter who you have up there that can bunt and can move these two runners over. You're down two one or three to one. Sorry, Yadier Molina had just hit a, a dramatic home. I don't have to retell everyone who's a Mets fan that story. No, no, no. Uh, let's 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 go forward. Let's move forward. Right. So the first two guys get space hits. The next guy on deck is somebody who can bunt, move the runners over. Now you're going to have runners on second and third, a Ricky pitch on the mound, put a lot of pressure on me. Well, really, Willie Randolph, the manager at the time, he probably made a, a, a good decision. I mean, he's looking out there at this rookie pitcher, and he goes, I'm going for it, man. I mean, you know, and, and sabermetricians nowadays would tell you that that's the, the right play anyways. He brings in Cliff, Cliff Floyd, just a superpower, just – really good pinch hitter, really good hitter in any, any sense who had a couple of hits off me. So he's got some numbers. He's, he's a veteran player. He's not afraid of the big moment. And when I watch this game back now, I am so nervous because remembering that sequence, I was too young and naive to really understand the big, the, the moment at the time, I think. Game seven was in the hands of a rookie closer. He took over the role from a former Met pitcher Jason Isringhausen, who, despite his success with the Cardinals, injured his hip and required surgery. Isringhausen was originally drafted by the Mets in the early part of his career and was widely hyped as part of the so-called Generation K, a crop of pitching superstars heading to Flushing. But it doesn't get any bigger than Game 7. And in that moment, Izzy was the lone voice in Wainwright's ear. He gave some sage veteran advice to the rookie closer on how to pitch in a pressure cooker game at Shea Stadium. But what happened was right before he came up to bat, I realized that my mind was just everywhere besides where it was supposed to be. And I remembered a lesson that Jason Isringhausen gave me, a former Met. Former Met, yeah. Uh, he was our closer who was injured at the time, but he still poured into me a lot. He helped me a lot. So I remember the lesson he told me, he said, Hey, when you get into big moments and he said, I know you probably think you pitched in big moments, but when you are closer, you're going to get into bigger moments. Trust me. When you get into these big moments, you have to have the ability to step off the mound, take a deep breath and just breathe and slow the game down. He goes, it makes, doesn't make a whole lot of sense why that would be important. Of course, you're always going to breathe. But he said, when, do, when you do that, it simplifies everything. You remember where you are. You remember your intentions. You remember your plan, your purpose for each pitch. But it just kind of just relaxes you just for a second. So I take, if you watch the game back, I step off the mound. I take a huge breath in and out, exhale. And all of a sudden, I had earmuffs on. And I didn't hear anything. And so the first pitch, I just come right at Cliff with a fastball in and he fouled it straight back. I mean, he barely missed it or the game would have been over and I would have been the, the chump of St. Louis for the rest of my life. And then 
seeing that, like now, I'd have been like, okay, he was on that. I need to do something different. I went, oh, yeah? Here you go again. And I just kept pounding fastballs up and in because Cliff was a guy who liked to get extended. If the longer the, the swing for him, if you throw him a fastball down and away, he was going to hit – he could hit the hardest line drives of anybody you could ever see. I remember that. I mean, he could hit a ball fence high off the fence in any part of the field because he's just so strong. I mean, Cliff's like 6'5 or 6'6, big, strong guy, just huge power, just backspun the heck out of everything. So I'm just – he's got kind of a hole up and in, though, so I just keep attacking that hole up and in, up and in, up and in. And then I get him where he's really aggressive and now he's got to look hard and I throw hard enough at that time where, you know, you got to kind of respect a little bit. And so then I, then I dropped a curveball on him uh, for strike three, but that first out people remember the Carlos Beltram, but that first out was a huge out because first and second, no outs, you know, biggest moment of my life. It could have all just sped up on me. And luckily that that lesson, that little thing that Isringhausen told me, it stuck to me and I was able to step off and kind of get my sense about me. But then the next out, the second out, that inning was so dramatic because that second out that I was able to get, Jose Reyes comes up and hits a bullet line drive to center field with two strikes on a curveball, a bullet line out right to Jim Edmonds in center field. Yeah. Now, if he that a little bit better. The bases are cleared, and he's standing on third because that guy could – he ran like he had a jet up his behind. So, if he's on third with now with one out, then you got the big boppers coming in. You got Beltran coming in. You got – you got um, – oh, who's the big first baseman, the big power hitting first Carlos baseman? Carlos Delgado. Carlos Delgado. Delgado. You, the, the lineup was just so deep, you know. So, uh, there was a lot of stuff that – you know, I'm just I'm just so blessed and, and, and fortunate to have been in that situation. But the way it turned out, the, the way it turned out was pretty cool. So th when I get the third out, when I get Carlos out, I think Paul LaDuca was up before him and I had runners on first and second. And I walked to LaDuca to get to Beltran to load the bases. And, and Tony says, what in the world are you doing? You know, and I said, what are you talking about? Statistical odds, it makes the most sense. You walk the bases loaded, you could get the force out at home. Of course, that's not what actually happened, but that's what I just tell him. But, you know, the key to the third out when I got Carlos out, the key to that out was paying attention. And this is what I tell our young pitchers all the time. I'm like, listen, let me talk you through this scenario. Because when we walk, when we watched Carlos Beltran all postseason long leading up to that, and then all game, all the games leading up to game seven, he was very aggressive early in the count. First pitch, he's ready. Second pitch, he's ready. And he was 0-2 a lot. But when he got 0-2, it was almost like he knew you weren't going to challenge him on 0-2. You were going to try to get him to fish something in the, in, the, in the dirt, chase something out of the strike zone. So it was almost like he knew that you weren't going to attack him. So he was very patient and he would watch really close pitches off the plate and wait for his pitch. So before game seven, I went to Yadier Molina and I said, Hey, if we get into a spot where Beltran's up and we get him with two strikes, I want to attack him and throw a strike because I've been paying attention. You've been paying attention. We see it. he's super patient. I think we'll get him. We'll surprise him. I think with a strike because he won't be ready for it. Yeah, he says, okay. So the first pitch, he comes out to the mound. He says, all right, what do you want to do? 
I said, well, here's what we did. Here's what we did. He goes, all right, trust me right here. Let's go fastball down and away. I said, great. He gets back behind the plate and he pauses. He points to his head and then he does this, like, stay with me. And he puts down change up. And if you know me at all, change up is my fourth best pitch. And so if Yachty did that today, after 15 years, I would call him back out to the mound and be like, what are you thinking, man? The bases are loaded. Carlos Beltran's up to bat. Change up. But at the time, I thought, he's never going to expect that. So we threw a change up and ended up being right down the middle. But the good thing about it was it kind of started at him. So it took his aggressiveness out right away because when it started at him, he kind of froze and it went right down the middle. And you could see him kind of stepped out. And you see him look up at the radar gun, and he and he was he had to have been thinking, what in the world? 84 miles an hour? What? He just threw me a changeup? And so then I think, you know, kind of that that pitch just messed him up. So second pitch, we threw a curveball, and he had a, a pretty good swing at it, but I executed it well. He hit it off his foot. So 0-2, we get into that spot where we prepared for, we planned for, we, we, we thought we might get into this spot. We did get into that spot, but this is all where preparation comes into play and paying attention comes into play. And so I stand on the rubber. Yachty knows he wants to call curveball. I want him to call curveball, but I want it to be a strike. So I'd stand on the rubber and I said to myself, I'm going to throw the very best curveball that I can possibly throw for a strike down and away. And if he hits a double here, at least I'll know I had a plan and I had intent behind it and I was going to execute it. And then I can live with that. And luckily I threw it exactly where I was trying to throw it and he took it. And it was, you know, honestly, so many people give him flack for not swinging at that pitch, but had he swung at it, I mean, I really don't know how much he could have done. It was, you know, there's those times where, what was it? Uh, what was the show in the eighties? It was like, I love it when a plan comes together. That was a, that was a moment for me. It doesn't happen all the time where I, I visualized it. I focused on it. I knew what was going to happen and it happened just the way I thought it was going to happen. And, you know, when you throw perfectly executed pitches, it's really hard for hitters. Hitters will tell you they make their living on mistakes, not on non well executed pitches. When you call someone an idol, you are describing a person who is greatly admired, loved, and even revered. Although I've always idolized Roberto Clemente, there was an extraordinary person who had a greater impact in my life, my late father, Manuel. Adam grew up in a single parent household and he shared how much of an inspiration his older brother had in his upbringing. Adam talked about his childhood and how his phenomenal brother guided his younger sibling towards a career in baseball. Similarly, I could relate to Adam considering in addition to my late father, my own brother has also been an invaluable person in my personal journey. Growing up, everyone has a baseball idol. I'd like to know, Uncle Charlie, Wayno, who was your baseball idol? Certainly I know in my household before it was this guy here, it was my dad because I know the impact that he had on my family, specifically in my upbringing. So before Roberto Clemente, First and foremost, it's always going to be my dad. Mm -hmm. But for Adam Wainwright, your baseball idols, you might even say, well, you know, Danny, you know, my, my, my family, but I love to hear who are your baseball idols. Yeah, so 
I was uh, I was raised in a single parent household. My mom raised my brother and I. Um, brother was seven years older for me and kind of like a father figure to me. My brother was, uh, you know, he would take me to school. He would, he would, uh, you know, take me to baseball. He'd stay out in the backyard with me and play catch. And, and my this brother, was your brother. This was your brother, Adam, right? My brother. Yeah. His name's Trey. And so my brother's a brilliant person. It was, it was unfortunate for me growing up, having in a growing up in a small town, going to the same school as he did because seven years before I came was the valedictorian. And so, you know, every teacher I had had him and they'd be like, are you as smart as your brother? And I'd have to be like, I'm not, I'm sorry. I apologize. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an okay student, but I'm nothing like my brother. And so my brother, because he was a, a student of the game like that, a student of, of everything, but especially a student of baseball. So he read books and, and the different ways to train and, and throwing programs and, and shoulder programs and all these things for me, he saw something in me that I didn't even know yet. And so in the backyard, he built me a pitching mound. He built a big net. It's still, it's still in the yard that I grew up in. The net's still in the backyard. The, the exact net, the exact frame of the pitching net that I threw into, the mound itself is washed away. But the net that I threw into with the square painted is still there today. I don't know how it's lasted. It must be the most incredibly strong twine in the history of the world. But if you look at the strike zone, along the edges were painted white. And so we, from the very beginning, we weren't just throwing into the big square that was the strike zone. We were trying to paint the edges. Uh, my brother and I would sit home. We planned our life around Atlanta Braves baseball. Hmm. The, back then, every game was on TBS um, at 7.35. Dinner time for us started at 7.34. You know, we sat down on the couch with our trays and our food. My mom always made us a big dinner and, we would sit down on the couch with the tray and, and watch uh, Atlanta Braves baseball. And so for me growing up, it was Smoltz, it was Glavin, it was Maddox. Those were my three big guys. And then a, a guy named Steve Avery, who a lot of people have forgotten, was the youngster of the bunch. Got him. Boone strikes out for the second time. A new career high for Steve Avery. He was 21 years old. He was the NLCS MVP. He was, you know, he pitched amazing in the World Series. The guy was a stud, left-handed pitcher. My brother was a lefty. I thought that was really cool. And what we would do is uh, we would watch their post-game interviews. We would watch, we would read what they said in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. My brother would highlight things that he saw Smoltz say there was keys to his game or Maddox's key to his game or Glavin's key to his game. And if you went back to my high school days, I had an entire wall of Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper articles on the wall with little tidbits that they had said that I highlighted, my brother highlighted for me to read. So What's the age difference, Adam? What's the age difference between you and your brother? Seven years. Seven years, okay. So... It was a really cool thing, man. Just looking back, like all the little things that happened, they were all, they all happened for a reason. And they all played their little part into why I was able to become a, a pretty good baseball pitcher. And, and it started as from an early age, the work ethic that needed to come with it and going out in the backyard, other kids are at home, you know, playing video games. I was probably doing some drills on the mound or something, you know, and, uh, but also playing other sports, soccer and football and, um, tennis and golf and anything that had a ball, learning different agil uh, agilities, different skill sets that helped me along the way. 
<laughs> playing football was one of the most important things I ever did for my baseball career. That's interesting. It, it taught me how to get back up. You know, I'm, I'm a. What uh, position? What position? Quarterback? Uh, played quarterback until my junior year of high school, and then I switched to wide receiver. And so okay. the last two years I played wide receiver. I did all the kicking also. But, you know, when I was drafted in high school, I was 6'7", 190, or 178 pounds. So right now I'm still the same height, 6'7", but I weigh 235 pounds. So I'm 70 pounds heavier than I was in high school, and I'm still skinny. If that tells you how thin I was. I was like so skinny. The wind blew. I fell over, you know. But because I was so skinny, each time I got tackled the first two weeks of practice, during two days in spring practice, I get the wind knocked out of me every time. You know, I had nothing to protect anything on my body. And every time I got off the mat, got back up and got back into the huddle to call a play, it was a great lesson for me that nothing was going to keep me down, that I was going to be tough enough to get down. And that just bit, that built my mental toughness and my physical toughness so much you know, battling injuries through the years like I have for 15, 16, 20 years, 30, 30 years of playing baseball. And there, I can't remember a time where I pitched a game where something wasn't hurting. But, you know, a lot of times players that aren't exposed to toughness like that or a dad who really pushes them or a mom who really pushes them or something, you know, they don't get back up. They, they hang the ball. Ah, that hurt. I'm done with that. Right. But you got to learn how to play through things like that. Sometimes you got to learn how to persevere. And so perseverance and learning that in football and a little agility work in soccer and hand-eye coordination and all the different sports we played. I think all those things played a part in making me who I was as a competitor. In our previous episode, I asked Pittsburgh Pirates manager, Derek Shelton to share his thoughts on what occurred in game six of the 2020 World Series with Tampa Bay starter, Blake Snell. He was pulled from the game even though he was totally dominant throughout six innings. So as a veteran pitcher, I asked Adam how he would have reacted if he were in a similar situation considering what he had accomplished in 2006 in a National League Championship Series. I don't know all the little details behind the scenes that the manager had spoken about with their players and coaching staff. You know that they, Kevin Cash has done – he does tons of, of job uh, – or tons of work pre-game and preparing his coaching staff and himself for putting his guys in the best scenarios to win. We know that he's a super student of the game, very smart, very analytical. Uh, and, and this is kind of the way the game has gone a little bit. I mean, I, I would say that it's not just, it's not just Kevin that, that manages like that. I think a lot of coaches have started realizing the, and understanding the importance of analytics in baseball. Um, I, I would say that in, in, without being there, without knowing all the details, which I don't know and, and would admit to not knowing, I would say that there needs to be a fine line um, in any sport, in anything that you do, in understanding the numbers, but also understanding the eye test and understanding um, the competitor on the mound. And the day, each day is different. You know, there's certain times where we shouldn't be allowed to, to face the, the lineup three times because our stuff is not there. And there's certain times where we ought to be able to face the lineup five times because our stuff is great and it's holding up great and we're getting quick outs and the innings are going over fast. But it's hard to fault him for uh, – for anything without knowing all the information 
But just from a competitive standpoint, I know from, from my personal view, you want your best guys on the mound at all times. So Schulte, I'll tell him, of course, you know, a manager is going to make his own decisions, not based off what a player tells him. But I'll tell him, hey, when you look at me, I'm out on the mound. If you look down the, in, the, in the bullpen and you see a, an opportunity to bring a better pitcher into the game, then do it. And if you don't, if you look out of the mound and you go, that's my best option right now, then leave me out there because I feel really good about it, you know? And that's, I think that's important to know. I mean, as a competitor, you want to know that your manager's got your back too. But I, listen, I don't know all the details behind Kevin and, and, and Blake's um, role over there. I don't know uh, what he was dealing with physically. I don't know what uh, went into making that decision. But it, it's not just the one decision. It happens a lot of times. You see a pitcher pulled. And, and a lot of times it happens where a guy gets pulled out and then you see the next guy come in and give it up. But, you know, take another situation. We were playing the San Diego Padres this year. <clears throat> we're on the mound. We have, let's see, was that game two or game three? When we got eliminated, they put in nine different pitchers. When we got eliminated, they put in nine different pitchers to beat us. Now, and we, I don't even think we, we might have scored one run. The odds of that are incredibly low. The odds of not one of those guys having a bad day is really low. Somebody usually has a day. So the deeper a starter can go, the less are the odds that you have to put more guys in. And then one of those guys going to have a bad day. So statistically speaking, baseball still makes the most sense to me and to almost anybody when a starter can go as, as deep as they possibly can. Now that is different with every arm and with every situation and every Tampa Bay is, is, is think about the role that they, the jobs that they do though. It's an incredible situation to have probably a, a fifth or a sixth of the amount of money that a lot of teams have to spend on free agents and players. They find great ways to go about it, to make guys get into great situations to succeed. They find little cool ways to make the game better. So it's hard to fault them for that. I mean, that's kind of, you know, how they've made their money and, and you got to applaud them for getting into the world series with the budget that they have. It's amazing. I hope you enjoyed the first installment of our conversation with the Cardinals all-star hurler. In part two, Bueno spoke at length about his Roberto Clemente award, his philanthropy and his charitable work outside of the diamond. And we even discussed his close relationship with fellow Cardinals legend, El Boricua, Yadier Molina. You don't want to miss that. Once again, thanks so much, Wayno, for sharing your extraordinary story on our podcast and your unwavering commitment to those in need. And for our listeners, please visit his foundation website, bigleagueimpact.org, to read about Wayno's mission on making a difference in the community and around the world. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Talkin21Podcast. And yes, guys, we're also on Facebook and YouTube. A special thank you to our co-writer and executive producer, Ras Guevara, and to our social media manager, Senor Basil. And mil gracias to Tito Rodriguez Jr., who provided our musical arrangement for Talkin21 Season 2. And lastly, we tip our cap 
to our graphic artist extraordinaire, Todd Radham, who designed our podcast logo. This is your host, Danny Torres, and be sure to follow me on Twitter at DannyT21. Tune in next time for our continued conversation about the great one.